Tom Daly captures our hearts once again, Matt Damon gives us another example of the daughter effect, and Rihanna officially becomes a billionaire. We're Jasmine and Maggie, and you're listening to Culture Club, a weekly chat about pop culture, current affairs, the internet, and our lives. We acknowledge that the Wurundjeri and Bunwurrung people are the traditional custodians of the land upon which we live, work, and record this podcast. We would like to pay our respects to Elders past, present, and emerging. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. Jasmine, you've taken up a new new side hobby, new girl boss venture. Um, no, but <laughs> you've been knitting. How's that going? It's been so nice to do something, but my bloody rotten capitalism brain, I'm like knitting a scarf. I'm knitting quite quickly because I've been doing it for a few weeks now. And I was literally like, oh, I could sell these. <laughs> And I did literally like, stop, like just do something for fun, not because you want to like turn it into a side hustle. I was like, ooh, what if I had an Etsy store? And then I could give all my friends scarves. Like, oh, my God, just do it because it's fun. But it's been really nice to learn a new hobby. Mm, No, I'm the same. I try to rope my mum into it because she's um, really good at knitting too. So she's like making beanies and gloves and jumpers. And I'm like, mum, like how long does it take you to make one? Like maybe we should start something. And she's like, no, (laughs) basically (laughs) for now. Um, But no, so funny how our brains work. Is it hard knitting? Like I really want to do it. but Well, luckily I have my grandma to teach me. So she's helped a lot. But um when you get into the swing of it, it's easy. My first few days were like mm. really rough, obviously, but then it becomes easier. I'm still not very good at, uh, what's it called? Casting on, which is where you actually put the wool on the needle. I'm still learning how to do that. But the actual action of, I think I'm doing pearl knitting. I don't know what it's called, but it's the only one I know because there's different like ways you can do it. Mm. And it's so therapeutic and I just do it while I'm watching TV in the evenings. And oh, so nice. it's really nice to like keep my hands busy rather than picking up my phone and playing yeah. with my phone. Because I'm still watching a screen, but like a TV screen. And then I'm like knitting like a little old lady. But honestly, it's like the highlight of my day at the moment. Um, never thought that would happen at 25. But, you know, you've got to take the small wins at the moment. Yeah. I mean, you're not alone. I found it interesting that you started a few weeks ago because I thought you only picked this up a few days ago because of Mr. Tom Daly, gold medalist diver man. (laughs) No, I didn't pick it up because of him, but it's definitely now cooler because of him. Did you have a crush on him when we were growing up? Didn't everybody? Like, I swear everybody I knew had a crush on him, like this beautiful British boy in the Olympics. Um, definitely this there was a coinciding time with Run Direction and him, was there not? He was like the sixth member basically in our heads. Yeah, so I posted, I remember having a crush on him in 2012, so I was mm. in year 11, and um, it was such a big thing for those Olympics. It was like the highlight. Um, and I posted on my story because, you know, the Tom Daly fever is back and I got so many replies. My question was like, um, did anyone else have a crush on Tom or was this a fever dream? <laughs> and everyone was like, oh my God, yes, I was obsessed. Or like, I found out, um, I found him on Tumblr. I feel like Tumblr was a big driving force for his popularity as well. 
um, reblogging, like the inspirational Tom Daly quotes of him and his little speedos. But yeah, now he's knitting at the Olympics and he's just so wholesome. I've just like got a crush on him all over again, even though he's married and has a kid. Um, I just found this TikTok this morning of him after he won the gold medal. And I just want to play it here because I think we all need a little bit of positivity and wholesomeness in our lives. Yeah, I mean, I feel extremely lucky to be um, from a country where I can come and um, represent my country, have a husband, have a son, because there are 10 countries here at these Olympic Games where being uh, LGBT is punishable by death. So there is a lot of work that needs to be put in. But, you know, I was the kid that I felt like alone. I felt different. I felt like I didn't quite fit in. And I really hope that this shows over these Olympics that no matter how different and how on the outside you feel, there is a chosen family waiting for you and you can achieve anything. So wholesome. Was this right after he won gold as well? Yeah, he was just like, just gotten out of the pool and an interviewer is interviewing him. And so sweet. I think it shows like how far we, a lot of countries still have to go, but how far we've come as well. Oh yeah. yeah. And also I think most people have seen the like photos and videos of Tom like in the Olympic stands. Sorry, I'm so bad with sport terminology, but whatever. And he's just sitting there knitting with his like mask on and stuff. Very cute. But what I didn't realize was actually how good he is at knitting. He is like, I would not be surprised if he entered like knitting competitions, you know, like he was making dog jumpers, tea cozies for his medal. He's made like dresses for his friends. And like, he's got this incredible Olympics cardigan that he's made and he's got like Japanese characters um, knitted in and everything. He's so talented. So, so talented. Like how does he have time for this? I know. And it is so inspiring to see how good he is because it does make me think like, oh, maybe I could knit a cardigan one day. (laughs) I can only knit scarves right now, but one day. My favorite thing would be seeing how he packed for the Olympics. Like he's got 10 pairs of Speedos and then like he's knitting yarn (laughs) right there. That's literally all I think he brought. But the Olympics is sadly coming to an end. Have you watched much? No. So sorry. I think like barely Mm. like barely 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 and I don't I feel so unpatriotic and everyone else I know is watching it like my parents are loving it like my boyfriend's family loves it um and when I see snippets I enjoy it but I don't know why I'm just so not attuned to it this year but what about you yeah I've been watching bits and pieces I just like watching like the winner's speeches or Mm. seeing people realize they won a gold medal like I've teared up a few times I even teared up when the we watched the end of the hockey game between Australia and Belgium and Australia came second on penalties so they still won silver and I was just like tearing up over it like I I was like so proud of these boys they're called the kookaburras um (laughs) and I've never been interested in hockey in my life like why do we get so emotional over the Olympics I feel like you're gonna start crying again (laughs) You're like staring off into the distance. I love that. <laughs> I mean, it is so emotional. You can get, you like get to see people like at the peak of their career, mm. fulfilling their dreams. It's quite, it is wholesome and it is nice. Um, I do want to say I am obsessed with all the TikTok content that's coming out of the Olympics. The Olympians totally know what they're doing, but I especially want to shout out this Kiwi rugby player. Do you know who I'm about to say? I feel like she's probably over everybody's for you page. Let me get her name. Yeah. So her name is Ruby Chu and I just have the biggest crush on her. She's so funny and just incredible. Um, I've never watched rugby before, but maybe I'll start. 
Yeah, there's been so much good content. Like, it feels really weird to see the behind the scenes of mm. the Olympics, of the Olympians in their, like, bunks. Like, it just looks like a school camp, but it looks so fun. Um, So love that behind the scenes glimpse into their lives. Yeah, I feel like TikTok has actually transformed the Olympics this year, so that's a wild curveball. <laughs> Maybe that's why we feel more connected as well. Well, some people feel more connected because we can actually use social media the way it was intended to, which is more connection and deeper connection behind like celebrities and sports stars. Mm. Love that a knitting, a knitting segment about Tom Daly has turned into like the internet's like pure purpose is coming into fruition. <laughs> Classic. So, Addison Rae makes her acting debut in Netflix movie, He's All That, a remake of the 1999 rom-com, She's All That. So, in the 1999 American teen rom-com, it stars Freddie Prince Jr., a.k.a. Fred from um, Scooby-Doo. Scooby-Doo. <laughs> Iconic. Uh, Rachel Lee Cook as the uh, protagonist, female protagonist, um, and Paul Walker um, you know, from the Fast and Furious, and Matthew Lillard, who was um, Shaggy in Scooby-Doo. What? Yeah, so two Scooby-Doo stars in this 1999 movie. Anyway, so it's um, a modern adaptation of My Fair Lady. Um, oh, which, I didn't know that. Yeah, so it's like Freddie Prince Jr.'s character, Zachary Silla, is the most popular guy in school at this high school. He has a very narcissistic and popular girlfriend who ditches him for a reality TV star. Then Zach consoles himself by saying that Taylor, his girlfriend, is replaceable with any girl in the school, like any girl could be the most popular girl. His friend challenges him to a bet on whether they can turn a random girl into the prom queen within six weeks. So... um Zach's friend chooses Lainey Boggs, played by Rachel Lee Cook, who is considered a dorky and unpopular art student. So you can imagine what happens. It's very much like a makeover rags to riches style story. So that was in 1999. Yeah. So from the sounds of things, um, Jazz and I, we both haven't seen the movie, um, but I definitely want to. But yeah, it sounds like a very feminist and progressive piece of text. (laughs) that's sarcasm uh, isn't it yeah yeah 100% okay, cool. sarcasm babes it's like let's take the ugly girl and make her hot and it's so funny because in the trailer she's like at the beach and like she takes off her like dungarees and she's wearing like a swimsuit and all the boys are like whoa so like the the same trope of like the nerdy girl taking off her glasses and becoming mm-hmm. a new person mm-hmm. um and the 2021 version with Addison Ray essentially the same it sees addison as an influencer shock horror um she's probably not used to playing that role again sarcasm i feel like i need to just say it every time now um and this time she's making over the skate guy at her school um in the trailer there's also snippets of her singing and also courtney kardashian makes a cameo and fun fact, the female protagonist from the 99 version plays Addison Ray's mom in the new version, so very meta. Um, I don't know if they'll reference the old one in the movie, but I think that's like a fun little nod to the fact that it's a reboot. Mm. Yeah, it's a bit weird, but also I haven't seen the original, so I don't 
I'm not totally in that world. Um, but in general, the movie looks quite, I want to say terrible, very much like a Netflix movie. Um, but you know, it still makes me really want to watch it. Don't know about you. Yeah, I when I saw the little snippet, I was like, oh, I don't know. But then I watched the whole trailer and I actually think I want to watch it. I mean, Addison's acting doesn't look too bad, I think. And she's oh. starring against um, is it Madison Pettis, who was like a child star in the 2000s when we were watching like Disney right. and stuff. So to be featured alongside those names and like Rachel Lee Cook from the original – I think that she has to be a pretty decent actress, right? No, I want to disagree with you, not about her acting, but the fact that it just so feels like, wow, this movie has purely been made to make money. Like, yeah, oh, is that? Yeah, I, mean, I, I, think, I don't think they're making it, and especially not a reboot. Like everything's being rebooted these days because, I don't know, maybe everyone's too tired of the pandemic to think of any new ideas. But it's totally like a money grab, especially casting Addison. But I still think that can make good movies, mm. entertaining it's just, movies, I should say. Yeah, it's so jarring just seeing her on screen, like basically playing herself. Like she, her, like her makeup is the same as she appears, um, you know, on TikTok, um, and it's very much her character. She's an influencer. She's a internet celebrity um so I find that kind of interesting I also find it like I referenced before I kind of find it weird that she's singing in the film not weird but I always feel like these internet celebrities feel like they have to position themselves in more traditional roles so for instance why can't Addison just be a tiktoker she's turned into a singer slash actor slash brand owner so mm, but isn't that like all of us like we are literally slashies as well we're not famous but like everyone has wears multiple hats these days but we do it more out of necessity right Mm. like if you could make all your living off one revenue like would you be dabbling in all these things I don't know if I would really as much I mean, maybe I'll like knock one or two things off, but uh, yeah, no, actually you saying that, no, I probably would still be doing (laughs) all these different things. You're like, I don't know. Anyway, how we turn this back into the conversation we were having last week about making work our identity. Oh my God, we need to stop. Oh my God. So, oh, also the only thing that I found funny about the trailer that made me be a bit like, oh, it's weird was Kourtney Kardashian. I was like, that feels like you're taking me out because they're such like big characters in themselves in reality. Mm. I was like, you're taking me out of the movie world by having Courtney there. I don't know. And I'll just know that she, you know, when you look at someone, you're like, I know that they're acting. Yes. Because they're yes, not a good yes, actor. Yes. yes. Yeah. That's what I think. When I Even when I saw her little line in the trailer, I was like, oh, my God. Anyway, let us know if you'll be watching it. I'm very intrigued. Yes, it comes out at the end of August on Netflix. Speaking of the Kardashian clan, Kendall Jenner is being sued for allegedly bailing on a modeling job for Italian brand Lujo. So reportedly she um, failed to appear for one of the two campaign shoots she had lined up for the brand. In its lawsuit, um, the brand claimed that she showed up for the first one, which was in July 2019, but didn't travel to the second one, which was, you know, in March 2020, which was then postponed because of COVID. 
But apparently um, then Kendall's team just stopped replying to messages and stuff. But at that point, she was already paid a total of $1.3 million, and that is USD as well. <laughs> yeah. So all in all, the company is seeking $1.8 million in damages, which is probably like, I don't know, $10 to Kendall Jenner. I don't know. How rich is she? Well, that's what I find so interesting that like imagine getting paid that much money. So we we know it was $1.35 million um, she was already paid and she only had attended one shoot. So that number is probably larger if she completed the whole deal. Um, just getting paid millions of dollars for like a photo for shoot or two. photo shoot. Haven't you been and paid then, in like oh. coffee for a photo shoot before? <laughs> yes, probably. Actually, yes, definitely. <laughs> Reflecting on that now. But like this is the fact that this is almost nothing to her. It just blows my mind. Mm. Also in Kardashian news, I saw a picture of Kylie with baby Stormy today on my TikTok and she's dressed up like Marie Antoinette with like cake all around her. I was like, oh my gosh, these rich people just making it so easy for us to get the guillotine out like it's gotta be camp or like i don't know it's just weird that a billionaire is dressing up as marie antoinette especially given the fact that apparently in america like the levels of wealth between the rich and the poor are bigger than they were during the french revolution that is an Mm. astounding fact oh my god i feel like these celebrities have to know like it's too on the nose otherwise and these are smart people or at least they have smart people on their team helping them out Mm. i just think it's yeah surely surely it's not just like a cute costume idea being like oh we should do this for fun like and the fact that there's some thought behind them let them eat cake you know the infamous marie antoinette line which apparently she didn't Mm. even say but it's what she's known for now Kylie says, let them eat cake. We say, eat the rich. (laughs) Last week, we had a segment about a celebrity using homophobic language. And here we are again. Actor Matt Damon announced publicly for some reason that due to his teenage daughter telling him how bad it is, Matt is no longer using the F slur. According to the BBC, he used it in a joke in the family home before his daughter left the table and wrote a, quote, long, beautiful treatise on how the word is dangerous. And as a side note, treatise is a written work dealing formally and systematically with a subject. You get some vocab lessons on Culture Club as well. So Matt said the derogatory term for gay men was commonly used when, quote, I was a kid with a different application. I said, come on, that's a joke. I say it in the movie, Stuck on You. Oh. <laughs> Which is from 2003. relatable. <laughs> yeah. What? So Matt Damon told the anecdote to the Sunday Times in a piece titled, Is Matt Damon the Last of Hollywood's Leading Men? While promoting his new film, Stillwater, which is inspired by Amanda Knox's legal fight to be cleared of the murder of Meredith Kircher. So it's not like... He told this story to some friends and family, which still would be bad if, I don't know, my uncle was like, I used to use the F word, but then your cousin said it's not good. Ha ha ha. I'd be like, okay. But the fact that he said it to the press is a whole other thing. I really like this quote by Hollywood reporter, TV critic, Daniel Feinberg, who said, 
As a member of the press, I like when celebrities talk to the press, but it's always illuminating to hear the stories that folks like Liam Neeson or Matt Damon think are humanizing and charming, but actually reveal insulation and isolation, among other unsavory stuff instead. To add on to this, in 2017, at the height of the Me Too movement, Matt told reporters that inappropriate sexual behavior needed to be seen as existing on a, quote, spectrum. He also recently apologized for the comments, admitting he had been, quote, tone deaf. He told New York Times, like everybody, I'm a prisoner of my subjective experience and that leads to having blind spots. Me more than most, given the experience that I've had as a white male American movie star, I don't even know where my blind spots begin and end. After the piece went viral, Matt released a statement to Variety saying, During a recent interview, I recalled a discussion I had with my daughter where I attempted to contextualize for her the progress that has been made, though by no means completed since I was growing up in Boston and as a child heard the word F used on the street before I knew what it even referred to. I explained that the word was used constantly and casually and was even a line of dialogue in a movie of mine as recently as 2003. She in turn expressed incredulity that there could ever have been a time where that word was used unthinkingly. To my admiration and pride, she was extremely articulate about the extent to which that word would have been painful to someone in the LGBTQ plus community, regardless of how culturally normalized it was. I not only agreed with her, but was thrilled at her passion, values, and desire for social justice. He continued, I have never called anyone the effort in my personal life, and this conversation with my daughter was not a personal awakening. I do not use slurs of any kind. I have learned that eradicating prejudice requires active movement towards justice rather than finding passive comfort in imagining myself one of the good guys. To be clear as I can be, I stand with the LGBTQ plus community. So to me, that statement sounds all well and good, right? But in the interview to the Sunday Times, he was quoted saying, I made a joke months ago and got a treatise from my daughter. I said, I retire the F slur, I understood. So what is it? Is it that he hasn't said it for years and they were having a conversation and this quote has been taken out of context? Or did he make a joke months ago and announced to the world that he has now retired the F-Slur in 2021. What is it, Damon? <laughs> Mr. Matt Damon. Because I also want to say that statement and quote that I just read out, it definitely felt like he had publicists' hands on it. I feel like no one speaks that eloquently off the cuff about an apology like this. Oh, yeah, but so, it was a statement. So right. that's like a PR statement, totally. Right, right, right. Publicists all over it. Yeah, you can just see them being like, oh, my God, Matt. And especially the fact that it's, like, promoting a new movie. It's so random. Like, I just don't understand what in the conversation prompted this either. <laughs> like, So with this being in the news, I couldn't help but think of some other men who have recently listened to their wives and daughters and made it seem like some sort of epiphany. Um, thinking about our Prime Minister, actually. So back in February, when former Liberal staffer Brittany Higgins' rape was released to the media, Scott Morrison said that it was through a discussion with his wife, Jenny, that the situation was, quote, clarified. Sorry, I know this has been going through the pop culture rounds and we've been talking about this horrific incident for months. I just, I just can't believe that that really happened. Like just seeing that written there again, I'm just like, Mm. I mean, what? I know. And the fact that that was February, it feels like not that long ago. 
But mm. if any listeners aren't in Australia or don't remember, the Prime Minister said, Jenny and I spoke last night and she said to me, you have to think about this as a father. What would you want to happen if it were our girls? Jenny has a way of clarifying things, always has. And so I reflected on that overnight and listened to Brittany and what she had to say. He also said he wants to make sure any young woman working in this place is as safe as possible as I would want for my own daughters. When a reporter asks, like, shouldn't you have thought about it as a human being? What happens to the men who don't have wives or children? Um, Scott replied, in my own experience, being a husband and a father is central to me, to my human being. So I can't follow the question you're putting. We also saw this in the press last year when uh, Senator Ted Yoho in the US called Senator Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez an effing bitch. And instead of apologizing or owning up to his words, he said that having two daughters made him very cognizant of my language and denied it using the slur despite it being documented by the reporter who witnessed the event. I remember seeing the video. Do you remember that? Yes, yeah. I do. So then AOC came back with this amazing speech that what did the rounds last year, and we'll insert a bit here because we think it deserves to be heard. But what I do have issue with is using women, our wives, and daughters as shields and excuses for poor behavior. Mr. Yoho mentioned that he has a wife and two daughters. I am two years younger than Mr. Yoho's youngest daughter. I am someone's daughter too. So I think that this Matt Damon situation is another example of men needing a woman they're related to and care about to explain things to them, whether that's rape or using homophobic language. This is just like taking it from politics to celebrity and pop culture. Um, but obviously daughters and wives don't exist to teach men empathy. No, honestly. And I think what's really appalling from both Scott Morrison and Matt Damon's statements, which is a weird (laughs) duo, I didn't think I'd put in a sentence together, is that they both kind of blame their whiteness and maleness for not being able to see the like the other side and they're like oh like so sorry like I can't see past it because this is my lived experience and obviously we're not like negating their lived experience but it's like ever heard of empathy like (laughs) it's just it's just so perplexing to me that someone would say that yeah it's like they need empathy to think of women as humans rather than objects it's so it's so revolting and it's so insidious. There's actually something called the daughter effect that I found in my research on this, where in 2017, venture capitalist firms noticed the rise of this effect. So basically, at firms whose senior partners had more daughters than sons, the female hiring rate was 11.87%. Wow, so great. <laughs> but it's better than the rate of 9.78%, which is when senior partners had the same equal numbers of daughters and sons. And if a senior partner had more sons than daughters, the female hiring rate was 8.68%. So a 3% jump just in what gender these men have as their children. That's so gross. And it's just like, oh, men who have daughters are like oh I can't treat women as these like sexualized 
objects anymore like no I know what you mean because I remember have you seen all these videos on TikTok where there's the guys they're usually stitched um with women calling them out thank god on my side of TikTok but the original videos are like they've screen recorded a young teenager dancing and the guy's like this is why I don't want daughters like they're already like sexualizing their unborn daughters and protecting and like a lot of misogyny comes out of like, but I just want to like protect them. And it's like, no, you're being a misogynist. Mm -hmm. So back to the daughter effect, daughters over 12 years of age had a greater effect on hiring than daughters younger than that. Um, The researchers wrote, older daughters may have more of an effect on the attitudes of their fathers. This is consistent with fathers observing potential gender biases that their daughters face as they get older. Yes, so fascinating. And funnily enough, through all this research about the daughter effect, there is no well-known, well-documented son effect for mothers of sons. Um, In an article for MSNBC titled Matt Damon and the Twisted Cultural Norm of the Daughter Effect, writer Liz Plank says that it's almost impossible to entertain this as a possibility because most women don't have to be related to men to care about them. Putting men's needs first is how most of us were raised in this patriarchal regime. Yeah, I think that quote really summarizes it. Um, I just still can't get over this phenomenon of men not exercising as much empathy as um, their female counterparts a lot of the ca- a lot of the time, and I don't think they're incapable of it. I just find it so perplexing to see this play out. I think blind spots is a really good way to put it. Like they, it's not even conscious. It's like yeah, literally a blind spot. They have no concept of it. Um, so yeah, so funny to hear Matt Damon needing his. Also, as a daughter, I'd be so embarrassed. Like I would be <laughs> yeah. embarrassed that happened in the family home, but for then for your dad, I'd be embarrassed that I would have to educate my dad on that. But to then have that man go out into public and say that oh, my kid had to educate me, like, facepalm. So, yeah, I just think if men, not just the men in these powerful positions, but men in general, were more receptive to their co-workers, friends, and the women in their lives, not just who they're related to, then their daughters wouldn't have to carry the mental and emotional load of educating them. So whether that's using homophobic language in 2021 or speaking out against rape allegations. Rihanna has joined the Billionaire Club this week and has become the world's richest female musician. She's reportedly worth $1.7 USD. $1.7? She's stingy. (laughs) She's worth $1.70. Congratulations, Rihanna. No, she is worth $1.7 billion. Thank you very much, um, which equals approximately 2.3 billion AUD dollars. According to Forbes, the bulk of Rihanna's fortune comes from the value of Fenty Beauty, of which she owns 50%. The rest lies in her stake in the lingerie company Savage Times Fenty, and then her earnings from her career as a musician and actress. I thought that Beyonce would have taken this, but apparently Jay-Z is a billionaire, but Beyonce singularly 
is she's worth 420 million. This came as a surprise to me. There has been a lot of mixed reactions to the announcement, ranging from praise to disgust. What were your thoughts? I think I was definitely in that surprised band camp. And it also didn't really, it kind of just like went past me. I was just like, oh, yeah. Like I saw like a headline, saw a tweet, and I was like, oh, okay. And then like kind of moved on. It didn't really spur any emotion from me. I'm dead inside. <laughs> what about you? Similar to me, but very mixed reactions. Half of me was like, you go, girl, we've watched her grow up. I remember watching her music videos when I was like 10 years old and seeing her grow up and grow in the limelight has been so fascinating and I love her music. But then the other half of me was like, billionaires should not exist. Uh, what is going on? We don't need more billionaires. Yeah, and I agree. Yeah, so I feel like articles also kind of had that range in headlines being super congratulatory or against it I guess um so for instance in refinery 29 writer Teo Bearer writes as expected there are some mixed feelings to this announcement as society reckons with the implications of capitalism this kind of wealth and the costs that come with it black capitalism won't save us but if there's anyone who is allowed to be a billionaire, it may just be Rihanna. Her companies aren't engaging in unethical business, which we will get into in the next quote. Sorry, just a pause from this one. The quote continues, labor and testing practices that have allowed other businesses of this size to amass their wealth and power. And both she and the brand are intentional about uplifting the kinds of marginalized identities who would typically be left out of or exploited by this kind of company. While in The Guardian, Nigerian-American political strategist and writer Akin Ola wrote a piece titled, Sorry, Rihanna, I can't celebrate billionaires even if they are black. They say, Rihanna's genius should be celebrated, but the wealth she has amassed must be criticized. The mere existence of billionaires is a detriment to us all. Celebrating the success of another black billionaire obscures the dangers that the black upper class poses to the black working class and working class people of all ethnicities. Rihanna's wealth was built in what appears to be an admirable way, but no billionaire's hands are clean. The cosmetics industry produces 120 billion units of packaging every year, much of it unrecycled plastic that can take a thousand years to decompose. Good on you, an organization that rates companies based on their impact on workers, animal, and the environment, places Savage Fenty, Rihanna's lingerie brand, in its lowest category due to its lack of providing sufficient information about its environmental and labor practices. So a lot of the discourse I was seeing online were people pulling similarities and comparisons between Rihanna and Jeff Bezos with a lot of the rhetoric from right-leaning people centering like how the woke left will condemn Jeff but are celebrating Rihanna and how hypocritical they are. I think it's important to note that while Rihanna, however you may feel about it, has gained her first US billion, Jeff Bezos was the first person ever worth over 200 billion USD, which is over 272 billion AUD. Yeah, I don't think we can put, I don't think it's good to pit them against each other in the way of like, well, now Rihanna's just as bad as Jeff Bezos. I don't think that's true, especially when you look at the fact that she is one, a woman, she is a woman of color, and she did start from nothing. Like these, Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk's 
and Bill Gates of the world say, we're self-made. We were like in our parents' garage. It's like, yeah, and your parents gave you like a $70,000 loan in 1975. Um, you come from wealthy families. Rihanna really did like come from Barbados. I remember she, it was like this real, again, I've referenced this twice, but like a rags to riches story when she was first um, plucked out of obscurity. And she has built this empire. Yeah. But in saying that, I didn't like the title written by Teo Barrow for Refinery29 that says Rihanna is the only billionaire allowed to exist. I just think no billion. I don't think we should have billionaires. That is my stance. Like I love Rihanna so much, but this is still capitalism on overdrive. To have a billion dollars is like crazy. But then again, Kylie's a billionaire. Were we having these conversations when Kylie became a billionaire? Very good point. I think we are super critical of Rihanna in ways that we weren't to yeah. Kylie. I think Kylie got like a free pass because we're like, oh yeah, that makes sense. Like that's because she's a Kardashian. Mistake. Yeah. Remember self-made billionaire on Forbes. Yeah, that's so true. Like we didn't ha- but is that because she is part of the Kardashian thing and they're so wealthy in our minds, they're like on another level. Whereas Rihanna maybe was like on a different level of celebrity and richness. So it's more of a story. I find it so interesting that you pulled out the point that um, Rihanna is like so self-made and whatnot because, yeah, Rihanna is this incredibly talented black woman who on multiple accounts is so prolific in like so many different fields and so successful Um, and literally everyone loves her. Like literally everyone loves her. And I find this point interesting um because i've seen people almost like excuse her billionaire status because she has worked so hard for it Mm. um it reminded me of shameless podcast segment like a week or two ago they were talking about why we dislike reality tv stars so much and um, a lot of people were like writing in and saying that we feel like they haven't done enough to earn their fame and wealth so there's a bit of that like criticism i guess uh thrown towards them And I feel like with Rihanna, a lot of people are like congratulating her because it feels like she has earned her wealth. Like you said, we've seen her like rise to fame um, and we've seen her build so many empires and to so many that is admirable. Um, And like she, she's like, she's earned it. Like that real like tall poppy Mm. syndrome, like roll up your sleeves, get the work done. Like very American dream. Yeah. But with Rihanna becoming a billionaire, she is putting more products into the world. Like she's making more lingerie and like putting out more skincare lines and stuff. You have to sell a lot of that to become a billionaire, right? And Mm. so it's just like, it's just participating in capitalism. And she's a very smart businesswoman. Um, But at the end of the day, we don't need billionaires. It reminds me of this conversation I had with Flex on her podcast. Um, and we were talking about how when she visited Ghana, it was like fast fashion has like just started there, right? And she's like, why can't we let them like enjoy it? Like we in Western cultures have had time to like enjoy these, yes, exploitative practices, but we get to like relish in that. Like black women have been dealt such a terrible hand. So like why shouldn't they enjoy what, like rich white men Mm. have had for so long before them 
but it's also that is a selfish thing in a way. Like we're not thinking globally about that because, you know, black women who are potentially making these garments aren't being treated correctly. But, you know, I I think it's so hard. Yeah, no, it's a very hard discussion and it is true. She has received so much more criticism for it. Um, But I just think it's a really interesting conversation because we haven't had these like issues before in terms of billionaires, especially not in a pandemic when the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer. And I think even like on our individual mindsets, like I feel kind of, I was going to say I feel close to this topic. Like how is this relatable to me in any way? But like, you know, we kind of praise Rihanna for making the world like a more inclusive place with her like lingerie and whatnot. And we can also accept that it also isn't great for the planet. And I think it's okay that people aren't perfect and people have hypocritical parts of them almost. We all do. Yeah, it's just... I don't think you can compare $1 billion to $220 billion as well. And, like, we know what Amazon workers go through. But would recommend reading both of those articles. Of course, they'll be in the show notes. Just to give a bit more context because it's not like her brands are particularly ethical either. Maggie, what do you recommend to us this week? Hold your horses because you've got to get ready for this gripping feature and expose on chef and master chef host Jock Zonfrillo. So the piece I'm recommending is he's very nice. The only problem is dot 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 chef Michael Pierre White on Jock Zonfrillo by Tim Elliott for the age. So I love Tim's writing and this piece was no exception. I also do want to say if you don't watch MasterChef or care about celebrity chefs, stay with me. I still feel like this is a really great piece of journalism. Jazz, you've read it. Did you watch MasterChef? I had literally never heard of this guy before this week when I heard a little snippet of him on Shameless Media's podcast, Books That Changed My Life. Um I heard him talking about, you know, dealing with heroin and stuff. And I was like, oh, wow, this man seems like he's had such an interesting life. I should listen to the podcast. Never got around to it. But this weekend, it's been all over Twitter, all over journalism, people's, you know, feeds and stuff. So I had to read it. And now I'm fascinated. It's so wild. I can't stress that enough. I'll probably say it like 30 times during this recommendation. But the subheading or the pull quote or whatever it starts with says, He's one of Australia's most celebrated chefs with a drug-fueled backstory to rival that of Anthony Bourdain, a staunch commitment to Indigenous ingredients and a Scottish gift for storytelling. But is the Jock Zonfrillo tale too incredible to be true? Oh, just gets you right in, doesn't it? Um, so to give a quick rundown and some background info, Jock is a charming and handsome man who has just released a book detailing his wild past, think teenage heroin addictions, a father and son-like relationship with Marco Pierre White, who is one of the world's most celebrated chefs, and even like a bout of homelessness and more. But the thing is, most of this seems to be untrue. So Tim writes, um, quote, of particular interest is renowned British chef Marco Pierre White, with whom Zonfrillo worked with in the 1990s. Zonfrillo mentions White 159 times in his book and refers to him as, quote, a father figure who, quote, saved my life. Jock is not a bad man, says White over the phone from London. He has a natural intellect and he's very nice. 
The only problem is that almost everything he has written about me is untrue. Oh my God, does that not break your heart a little bit? Imagine if you're like writing about this guy who's like your father figure and then he's like, "Mm, no. It's so, I felt so embarrassed, like the whole article. I was like, but that's on him. Imagine writing a book and then expecting that the fact that you're lying throughout the whole book for that not to come out. But doesn't think, is he actually lying on purpose or is he like using selective memories and like exaggerating them um, just to like make himself sound a bit better and like a bit more edgy, you know, have that persona of like coolness or whatever. Yeah. I mean, I think it's like a bit of both. Like I think he is lying to make his like persona cooler. Um, But, you know, people around him could pick it up. Like his colleagues were calling him a famous bullshit artist, apparently someone who burns people and moves on. So this is not just like a cute little white lies to make him seem edgy. He's like not the kindest person I want to say. And I'll get into a couple quotes later as well. Um, I love this quote by another chef of his um, who said, I chuckle to myself when I see what he has achieved and how the stories change. But if I do know Jock, and I think I do, it should probably be lodged in the historical fiction section of the library, referring to his memoir. That quote made me laugh out loud. I was like, oh, my God. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, oh, I always feel guilty about, like, getting so much enjoyment from these, like, stories that rip someone (laughs) to shred. Um, But it is a tantalizing read. And, yes, it did leave me a bit giddy and like with my jaw wide open. Um, yeah, I just find it so wild. Uh, so some of the not as pretty things about his life is that his closed restaurants have a combined debt of $3.2 million. And also there was an instance of violence where he reprimanded one of his 18-year-old apprentices, Kramer, for working too slowly. Um, so Jock was about 24, 25 years old at this time, and he dabbed this flammable gel between Kramer's legs, which set his pants on fire. Kramer severely burnt his hand, like trying to get his um, shorts off, and his medical report read that he had suffered extensive burns and excruciating pain and he was unable to work for three and a half months and the thing is what I think makes it worse is like looking back at the instance when he's talking to Tim about it Jock and his wife frame it as like a practical joke on wrong and incredulously Jock tells Tim He called Kramer's mum the next day to check up on him and apparently she said oh he's all right he's out surfing but then, of course, Tim, Mr. Writer Man, called up Kramer to fact check this. And Kramer said, this is a lie. For one, I don't surf and never have. I was actually at my GP surgery getting new dressings put on my hand. Kramer then sued Jock, winning $75,000 in damages in 2007. But that same year, Jock declared bankruptcy. He never paid me a cent, says Kramer. So, wow. This is so wild. Like imagine thinking you're in, getting interviewed for a piece that's like going to help I your know. book sales and then like people like me who never even heard of him, I now know of him because of this piece and it's not put him in very flattering light at all. No. Not at all. And I do want to say like Master Chef just kind of escaped all that controversy 
with the previous three um, hosts mm. and now this is blown up and like I love MasterChef and I love the new like judges also I did um so I wonder how this will play out they've got their celebrity MasterChef coming up soon so we'll just have to wait and see and it's already filmed I'm pretty sure so yeah after what yeah. they went through with George Columbaris now this guy they're probably like why are we getting these like crazy chefs <laughs> <laughs> don't trust a chef that's what they say <laughs> Okay, Jazz, what are you going to be recommending to us this week? I'm recommending the book She is Haunted by Paige Clark. It's a book of short stories by Australian Chinese writer Paige Clark. And it talks about recognition, connection, the transnational Asian identity, intergenerational trauma, dynamics of mother-daughter relationships, and so much more. So I'll read a little bit of the blurb. A mother cuts her daughter's hair because her own starts falling out. A woman leaves her boyfriend because he reminds her of a corpse. Another undergoes brain surgery to try to live more comfortably in higher temperatures. A widow physically transforms into her husband so that she does not have to grieve. They are very powerful stories and I feel find her writing so beautiful and so inspiring I don't know if when you read books as a writer do you feel inspired by their words like not just like on a personal level but just like I feel inspired to write a book now like (laughs) no 1000% like I love hearing different writers voices and the different turns of phrases Mm. it's so good yeah so good and like how they use writing creatively to express something that you never thought of before um so I'm also really into books of short stories at the moment I don't know if it's because my attention span is ruined brain yeah (laughs) so now I'm like okay if I know the story ends in like four pages like I can do (laughs) so bad um so yeah I would definitely recommend that if you are into short stories if you like Australian writers um and if you're looking for something to escape into from your own life in lockdown Lovely. And it is her debut book as well. So it's this awesome thing. Her put out um, this piece of writing. I've also read it. Yeah, I found her writing style like so unique. So that was cool. So there you have it. Another episode of Culture Club. We hope that everyone is keeping well. We don't want to talk too much about the lucky days because we just can't. <laughs> but we hope everyone is safe and well and still trying to enjoy hobbies hope you enjoy your walk for the day hope you enjoy maybe a little tea or whatever makes you feel happy we will be back here on tuesday keeping you company until then check us out on instagram at culture club pod but yes love you all bye bye